Now we can begin this morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. We, in our time, as we've been going through kind of a general survey of the New Testament, we've gone through different sections. We've gone through the Gospels. We've gone through the historical book, the book of Acts. We've gone through the letters of Paul, the epistles. Okay? And... Pass them around Today we're going to start a new section in our study of the New Testament. A section that is, is generally referred to as the general epistles. So, in our understanding of the scriptures, we believe there are 13 letters of Paul. Now there are some church history that have thought the next book we're going to look at is in Paul. But that hasn't been necessarily an endless opinion, and so we just leave it. But these are those that are not written by Paul. Letters that are not written by Paul. So some of them, as you can tell, are written by James, or Peter, or John, or Jude. Two of them half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude. And then we have the book of Hebrews, and we'll have a discussion about that today. Who's the author today? Paul. <laughs> Here's some punch, huh? Um, so, they're referred to as Catholic because they were written to a general order, a general population, a general group of people, and not a specific people. So, for example, we have the first letter of St. Paul the Apostle to the Church of Corinth. We have the second letter of Paul. We have the first letter of Paul to Thessalonica. Okay, for example. But these letters are not necessarily written to a specific group of people, but more general. So, if, if we look at um, the book of James, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, to the twelve tribes scattered in the diaspora among the Gentiles. Or if we look at 1 Peter, where it's written to uh, God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Second uh, Peter, written to all who have a common faith as precious as ours. 1 John, written to believers generally. So they're called the general epistles because they don't have quite the specific audience that maybe the letters of Paul have. Okay? It does not mean they're not as important. It does not mean that they're of a subcategory. It's just a way of helping us to understand how God, as he gave us these books, helped the church to organize them so that we would understand the message and the flow. Okay? So over the next several weeks, we're going to look at the general epistles. And we start with perhaps the one that is the most difficult. Difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, but the book of Hebrews. Now, we probably are going to take a couple of weeks to kind of talk through this one because there's just a lot there. We're not going to look at every verse, of course. We're not going to look at every chapter. We just want to get an idea of the historical situation. Okay? Um, there's just a lot of questions that people have about the book of Hebrews. Um, we aren't sure exactly who the author is. We aren't sure exactly who the intended audience is. Um, there's key words in there that we have to think about. Perseverance, or inheritance, or salvation. Um, there are warning passages, and we talk about what, what is it that's lost in these warnings. Um, it, the book's an enigma. But I think it helps for us to understand that when we get towards the end of the book, 
Brecht says that it's basically a sermon. Or he uses homily. But it's basically a sermon. And so if we understand in the context of a sermon, then we know that a sermon, there's an introduction, and there's main points, and there's a body, and then there's development, and there's application. It reads differently than a letter, if, if in fact that's what it is. So there's some confusion. There's things we just don't know. On the other hand, the book of Hebrews is an exciting full of rich theology about who Christ is full of rich theology about how Christ is better. And so the whole argument is going to be all throughout how Christ is better. Whatever came before was just a sign or a shadow or a type, something pushing forward to what would be, would be the fulfillment in Christ. And so we who are Christians in Christ... This becomes an exciting book then because what did Jesus do for us? Who is he? How does he compare to Moses, Joshua, the angels, Israel, the old covenant, the old priesthood, the old sacrifices? And then if we're in Christ, what does that mean? So, if you detect the book that we'd love to spend a number of weeks on, and maybe in the future we'll, we'll offer it as this Bible study is going through this book. But, this is a survey of the entire New Testament, so much as we might like to just spend more time with one, we can hold that off. And maybe the desirable group to want to study it, and then we'll be more ready when that day comes. Now, the title to the Hebrews is really the only title that we've ever seen in the history of the church, to the Hebrews. And that brings up a question, who are the Hebrews that are referred to here? Where are they? What is their life situation? So, um, in the history of the church, we ask the question, who is the author? So it's interesting then, as the church has wrestled with this issue, now it's interesting that when Paul writes his letters, he tells us it's him that's writing it. The first four Gospels, the unanimous testimony of the early church, as we know that they're written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know who they are. We know that the book of Acts was written by Luke. We know that the other letters were written by Paul, and then we know that James wrote a letter, and Peter, and John. But this is the only one that doesn't have a name attached to it. Even the book of Revelation is directly tied to the apostle John, who says, I, John, was in exile on the Isle of Patmos. So this is the one book that doesn't have an author, and yet it has some of the most interesting subject lines in the New Testament. So I wonder what God has wanted to teach the church through all these years. Maybe instead of having a discussion about who the author is, maybe we should just spend more time about what does the book say. But, on one hand, it is important who the author is. Because we know that ultimately it's God that's the author. In fact, there was one early church father who simply said, we're not sure who the human author is, but the author is God the Holy Spirit. Okay? But sometimes it's important to understand the author. So we understand 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, because we know about Paul. We know about his life situation, about his travels, who did he interact with, what cities did he go to, what did he accomplish when he got there, so we understand the letters more. But here we don't have that. And so we're, we, we long to fill in those details. So um, some early manuscripts show that it was written right after, places it right after the epistle to the Romans. I mean, some of the early church thought that it was Paul. 
If I'm not mistaken, that is the official position of the Eastern Orthodox Church, with the Hebrew by the Apostle Paul. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that. Um, could it have been Paul? Is it important that it was Paul? Or was it not important that it was Paul? Um, if it was Paul, why did he put his name on it? That would be the logical question we would ask, right? So, some would say, well, it's because Paul, he knew that there was great opposition to the gospel among the Hebrew peoples. He also knew that there was great opposition to him personally. So, if they knew that the letter was coming from Paul, they would have rejected it outright. That's how the argument goes. So, Paul's just really being humble and not revealing who his identity is. Um... And in fact, the only mention of apostle in the book of Hebrews is of who? And ultimately, who's the greatest apostle in the New Testament? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is called an apostle in the book of Hebrews, and he's the only one that's called an apostle. Apostle simply means send one, one that's commissioned. Okay? Well, from what we know about Paul, does Paul seem to be the type of person that would shy away from a battle? Mm. No. So I'm not, I don't really find this argument that convincing because Paul was not afraid to get in there and mix it up in every city that he wrote to. Okay? So we have a guy by the name of Eusebius, or Eusebius. He's a guy that actually wrote the first history of the church in the early 4th century. In fact, you can still read it, the history of the church by Eusebius. Now, he is a little bit of a propagandist. I mean, he, he was writing in the Roman Empire. He wanted to show the greatness of Christ, the greatness of the church, that Christians were not a threat to the Roman Empire. But he said this. He said, if I state my opinion, I should say that the thoughts are of Paul. But the style and composition are the work of someone else who recalls the teachings of Paul. And then he goes on. But as to who actually wrote the epistle, God alone knows the truth of the matter. And this is an early church historian in the early 4th century, the same we really don't know. Okay? Uh, but that is the Eastern church thought that it was Paul. Now, this is not a church history course, but there are a lot of things that happened in the first several centuries of the church that laid the groundwork for the eventual separation of the church from the east and west of the Roman Empire. And one of them was on this issue. Who has the authority to make the call? The Eastern Orthodox Church, your Greek-speaking co congregation, said it was Paul. And the Western uh, part of the Roman Empire, your Latin-speaking congregation, said, well, we don't think that it's Paul. And there was this ratcheting up of who has authority over whom, and who goes back to the apostles that eventually led to what we call the Great Schism of 1054. That just means that they broke away and there was a bunch of bishops by that time that said, we're not going to follow the bishop of Rome anymore. And by the way, they weren't wrong. <laughs> um, as I said during communion this morning, our people go back to the, the prophets and the apostles. We're part, that's part of the, the history of faith that we have as Bible-believing Christians. Um, but in the West, the Western part, don't think of Western countries, we're just dividing the Roman Empire, East and West. Okay, in the Western part of the Roman Empire, they said, well, we don't think it's from Paul. And so some of their early writers in the late first century said it wasn't Paul that wrote it. Um, so what do we say about Paul? Well, 
I'm not sure it's that important to go into the discussion. If you get a good introduction to the New Testament, you can look at the arguments for Paul. You can look at the arguments for someone else. Um, the arguments for it might be Barnabas, it might be Luke, it might be Apollos. And all throughout church history, you have good, well-intentioned men of God who have said this, who have said this, who have said this, who have said this. And they had their arguments. But obviously no one opinion has ruled the day. Because maybe God didn't intend for us to know Okay? And as a result, then we should have a, a hermeneutic of humility. Well, we don't have to know and understand everything as we approach the scriptures and rather let the scriptures teach us rather than forcing the scriptures into whatever preconceived box we think we have formed. Okay? What did the Council of Nicaea say about it? I don't think the Council of Nicaea addressed that issue. The Council of Nicaea was worried about, not worried, concerned about properly presenting who Christ is. Because, just very briefly, because we believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man in one person forever. Right? Well, how do you explain that? What does it mean that he's truly God and truly man in one person forever? So early on, there were different teachers that either overemphasized his humanity at the expense of his deity, or overemphasized his deity at the expense of his humanity. And all of the heresies that have come up down through the church age and into our current time got started then. There's no new false teaching under the sun. They're just borrowing and regurgitating things that, they, that were early in the church. So the Council of Nicaea wrote a statement of faith very particularly, each clause in there, defining who Christ is, differentiating it from the heretics that were. Which so is what that was their work. That was, yeah, their work. that was their work. Yeah. So they didn't necessarily comment on this. Uh, just one more thing on church history before we move on. Yeah, we've already talked about East West. Okay, the Eastern Orthodox Church went off in one direction, the Western Church went off in another direction, and then the Church of Rome just more and more got away from the principles of the gospel, they spiral out of control into all kinds of different areas, uh, in so many different ways that the Reformation had to bring the church back to the gospel. Okay? So like I said this morning, our church, the Protestant church, the Bible church did not start in the 1500s. It started back in the first century with the giving of the New Testament. Well, so whatever the Protestants did in reforming the church with the gospel, with worship, with what do we do with liturgy, the authority of scripture, and that sort of thing, they said, we're not sure who the author of the book of Hebrews is. Enter the Council of Trent, which was the Catholic response to the Reformation. And basically, everything the Reformers said, they had to say the opposite. <laughs> so by dictate of the Council of Trent, between 1545 and 1563, they declared that Paul was the author of Hebrews. Not because they had great arguments, not because they had great evidence... It's just they couldn't go along with something that Luther or Wesley or Calvin or whatever. Presumably, all these guys were along with. Okay. It might, in fact, be true, but the way they went about it was just a political power play. Okay. So, who was the author? Okay, we kind of rambled on. We're on page two. Uh, what do we know about the author? That's probably the most helpful thing that we can look at. He is a second-generation Christian. 
He talks about knowing and receiving the gospel from those who had it before him. Um, he's well-educated. Yeah. If he was a second-generation Christian, then that seems like that would eliminate Paul. That's one of the arguments against Paul in the apostleship. So very good. Hmm. So he seems to be educated. The Greek in Hebrews is very good and very complicated. It's, there's some phrases in there that, wow, you're trying to get the subclause up from the subclause up from the longer clause. But it's very high, refined Greek. So he was obviously educated and he knew the Greek Old Testament very well. The Greek Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. Uh, in your notes, you see this expression, LXX, right? You know your, your Roman letters, right? 70. So it just comes from Septuagint, which means the 70, or the writing of the 70. It has to do with the second century BC when this council got together to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek for use in the larger Middle East. That was the version that they came up with. And the writer of Hebrews knows about the Septuagint. He quotes from it. So he must be writing to Jews that are outside of Jerusalem. At least that's what it seems. Um, what are some dates then? We say amen and amen. It's God the Holy Spirit that ultimately wrote this letter. Of course, that's the same for the other 65 books of the Bible as well, both the Old and New Testament. In most of those other cases, we know who the human author is. But in the case of Hebrews, we don't. So here's some things that we know about this, at least what we can glean from the book itself about this, the writer of Hebrews. Now, what are some dates to consider? Now, this is a little bit longer argument. I'm sorry that we're being so academic today. But you can understand why, because it doesn't start out with a letter from Paul, Peter, James, John, okay? We're trying to, like a detective, pull together clues. So Clement of Rome, who was the leader of the church in Rome at the end of the first century, mentions the book of Hebrews. That's 96 AD. So that gives us the latest possible time the book could have been written. Um, if he's a second generation believer, meaning just he heard from someone that knew Christ, you know, early on, Probably about 50 AD. And Jesus ascended around 30 AD, 33 AD, depends on the calendar you follow. Okay? Maybe around 50 AD. So now we're narrowing it down. Timothy, in chapter 13, is still alive. Now, Timothy was a disciple, a follower of Paul. Paul died in 65, 67, somewhere in there. Timothy would have still been around. Timothy's still alive. Now, Timothy was alive in 67 AD as well. But we're just showing that it's within that range of time. Okay? The readers are going through a time of persecution, but have not yet shed their blood. The persecution is not broken out to the point where they're being martyred. Well, when did the martyrs happen? Well, Nero had one between 64 and 68 AD. And that seems to narrow it down even more to where this book was probably written. Okay. There was a, an outbreak of uh, persecution that started in 81 AD and went to 95 AD under Dalmatian, but that was not as severe, 
probably didn't affect the people that he's writing to here. Another thing is, think of the book of Hebrews. What is it talking about? Priest, high priest, animal sacrifices, blood, new covenant. The temple isn't mentioned anywhere as being destroyed. The temple is mentioned. Yeah. The temple is not mentioned being destroyed. When was the temple destroyed? 70 AD. 70 AD. So now it seems to bring us back before 70 AD. And that seems to be a good place for us to consider that somehow it's in the early 60s. Okay, that he would have written this letter. Now, does it make any difference when it was written? Not necessarily, because it still has an eternal message of salvation to those who are being persecuted, but it does seem to place it historically. And so the more that we can know about the placement of the books in the historical setting, the better off we'll be. Okay? So, um, one commentator says this about the writer, to the extent that he can. He says, the writer is a man who has pondered long on the Christian approach to the Old Testament. What he writes has been well thought out. He knows where his line of argument is going. When he pauses to challenge his readers, he does so with sensitivity, preferring to think the best of them, but giving them strong warnings. In spite of his anonymity, he is a force to be reckoned with in early Christian theology. He gives us, and this is the key, the clearest discussion of the Christian approach to the Old Testament of any New Testament writer. Okay? So that's important for us to understand. If we want to understand how the early church understood how to understand the Old Testament in light of the coming of Christ, Hebrews is a great place to start and spend lots of time because it gives lots of examples of how to understand the Old Testament now in light of Christ. Okay? That, that's not just the Old Testament. It's like a Jewish way of life and Jewish yes, way of religion. That's right. That's the right. current Jewish way of religion as Judaism continued. Yeah, right. It's, it's challenging their understanding of all of that and showing that ultimately what the Old Testament was pointing to was Christ, not what they were practicing in the first century. Okay, so it is taking on that as well, the Jewish life. But principally, he quotes from Scripture so often that it shows he wants us to understand what Scripture is saying. Okay? Now, let's just take a pause there for a moment, because that was a lot of description and, and detail and historical situation, and you're wondering what difference does it make. Well, on the one hand, maybe it does make a difference. We can still understand the letter, and we can still live it out. Right? But on the other hand, it's good for us to try to really, in a sense, think the mind of God after him. What was he doing as he gave this letter so that we could fully understand what he was doing when he sent his son, who then was our peace offering, our sacrificial offering, guilt offering, all these different things. Okay? And that's where it becomes very practical when we understand what it is that he's our peace offering, what it is that he's our guilt offering, what it is that he's our fellowship offering, what it is that he's the Passover lamb, what it is that he's the scapegoat, what it is that he's the high priest. He's the sacrifice and the high priest. Now that's, there's a lot of threads that pull together so that when we come to the Lord's table, we understand more what it means when we're there. Okay? At the same time, he's addressing the Hebrews. He's addressing Jewish people who seem to have shown some interest in Jesus. 
to following Jesus, but then when persecution is starting to come, they're being tempted to go back. And so all throughout that, he's even warning us, don't go back. Don't turn back. There's no sacrifice possible if you've accepted the one sacrifice, if you've rejected the one sacrifice that God accepts, there's no other sacrifice you can offer that God will accept. If there's one high priest who has finished and sat down, there's no need for a high priest who must continually stand. And so he's, he's warning them all throughout as they're tempted to go back to what they do because it was comfortable, but it also kept them from being persecuted. It's saying, at the end, he says, Jesus died outside the gate. He went outside of Jerusalem. So go to him outside the gate. In other words, leave the old way and go and join him. Okay? So it's a great gospel message all throughout. Okay, any other questions on that? That's a, that's a good question. So far, so good? Okay. What's the place? Well, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know the author. We don't know exactly what it was written. We don't exactly know the origin. You know, what do we know? Well, we can get some ideas. Um, I wonder if I did this state. one look. See, this is the inspired word of God that doesn't change. My PowerPoint is not. <laughs> Sometimes that's been modified. <clears throat> those who come from Italy send you greetings. So it seems like he is writing to those back <coughs> in Rome. That's what I thought. But I just want to make sure I wrote it correctly. So Jewish believers in Rome were facing persecution to what? Turn to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. It's a dead end. It's a cult aside from which you cannot return. <coughs> so, let's move on to what we normally do, which is look at how the book is laid out. And then we can look at some chapters. And we're probably going to want to camp on a few. I just have a sneaky suspicion. There's going to be a few places you're going to have some questions about. Okay? <laughs> and we want to leave room for us to be able to do that. But simply, we could divide the book just into two main points. Okay, the first ten chapters or so, the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Joshua. He's the greater high priest. He's the greater priest. He's the greater sacrifice. He's the greatest temple. He's all these things. Then as a result, we should live a superior life. If Christ is all these things, our lives should reflect the greatness of Christ. And so then you'll get into some very practical application in how to live the Christian life. Now, so we could, we could just divide it that way, right? And be done. But, but where would the fun be, right? We want to know a little more of the details so we have something to discuss. So we'll break it up this way. Okay, now we can see how Jesus is greater than the prophets, the angels, Moses, the priests, the covenant, the sacrifice. And as a result, we as believers persevere in our faith and we demonstrate great love. Okay, so that gives us kind of a simple uh, overview of understanding where the book is headed, what we're going to learn from it. And I hope that when you look at this outline, that you'll, you'll walk through the book of Hebrews looking at it. And to see, this is, a, this is a man that put together a very orderly account of what he's trying to present. He knew where he was going. He knew the application points he wanted to bring. He knew the case that he wanted to present. And I just, I just find it fascinating 
to the extent that I can understand how God works. How God the Holy Spirit working through these men that he chose, we know as the prophets and the apostles, to give us this book. And yet as we read it, we understand that these are different men with different personalities, from different lifestyles, with different writing styles, with different emphases. And yet it's without error. Amen. And yes, there's a theme and a message that flows all the way through. And so we can delight in, when we, when we get in the Lord's presence, I'm going to be happy to meet the writer. <laughs> I, I, I won't, I, you know, we're going to have lots of time to sit around and talk, right? So I want to hear more about the background. There's a lot of continuity between this life and the next. We're going to be able to talk, know each other, have fellowship, and do things. Of course, it'll all be without sin, so it's going to be really fun. Amen. But to sit and talk and, you know, just to hear more of the context of who he was. Uh, but then, his response is going to be, behold the Lamb. You know, I will just be looking at Jesus and just be amazed at his presence. And that's the point of the letter that he wrote. Okay? So, are we ready? Because there's just some very important things that come up in this book that have caused Christians some a challenge over the years. But isn't it, like, in contrast to some others, isn't it, I mean, the sections are just so, well, this is how he's better than the prophets. Well, this is the angels. Well-defined. I mean, yes, it's, it's well-defined. He, he doesn't go on and on, but he just puts the evidence out there and says, here's the proof. Here's the proof. And constantly refers back to the Old Testament to make his case. So he's bringing his people along to a definite conclusion that he wants them to reach. And then once they reach that conclusion, oh, by the way, this is what it's going to look like in your life going forward. So yeah, I just... should have written a whole book about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's almost uh, yeah, it's almost like God wants us to continue to do the hard work to figure out how to apply it to our lives today, right? Yeah, and, and that's why we do need to study the scriptures to learn more. So, what what are the themes? I've already written one down. Better, better. It's just the answer, the answer is always the same. Jesus is better. It's not, he's not saying that things before were not good. No, in fact, he calls them holy. He calls them important. He calls them displaying the goodness of God, part of God's covenant, faithfulness to his people. But whatever it was before, Jesus is better. So the immediate application point in our own lives is Jesus is better. What is your job? Jesus is better. What's your career? Jesus is better. What's your living situation? Jesus is better. Uh, because if He is our all in all and we are sufficient in Him, then it does give us balance to better understand how to live out family life, how to live out church life, how to live out work life, how to live out neighborhood life. Because Jesus is better. And that should just continually roll off our tongue just as a praise offering. Um, but that would be fighting words for the Jews. Well, was it fighting words then? Yeah. yeah. It was then. We, we, so when we look particularly at the, the, the writer of Hebrews, he's making that case. Yes, there were some that were going to reject it, right? Just like they did with Christ, right? right. Just like they've been doing down through history. That's why we put all of the 
Bible together and say, well, God in His mercy is revealing Himself to a whole bunch of people, and in His judgment He is hardening some, right? But we still share it, because it is good news. And my understanding of the book of, of Romans is that um, when we get to chapter 11, there's a whole lot of people that claim to be Jews that are going to come to Christ one so we just keep on putting it out there. Putting it out there. Putting it out there. Because we don't know God's signing on this, right? Okay? But yes, it would have been fighting words in the beginning. So, we would say this is really the, the controlling theme. Right? The unqualified supremacy of God's Son. Supremacy without challenge, whether from angels or human beings. Jesus is there. So we, we see he's the great high priest with all of the responsibilities, all the functions, all the blessings. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. Better than Aaron. Better priesthood. Better sacrifice. Better covenant. Better life. He's our high priest. And I don't know if you noticed this morning when we read the Nicene Creed that says he ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Right, Hebrews brings that up. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Now, Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8, but the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear. And so, if you need an encouragement and a boost to your prayer life, meditate on the fact that Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. He is still your high priest. Intercede. And that should motivate us then to want to intercede and to pray because, wow, he, he wants to sweep us into that fellowship that we can have at the right hand of the Father. Okay? He talks a lot about the need to endure and persevere. And we're going to talk about that when someone doesn't persevere or someone doesn't endure. We're going to get to some of those sticky wickets that are in the book of Hebrews and just kind of talk about them, Okay? And then the importance of faith. The importance of fellowship. Let us not forsake the gathering one as some are in the habit. Why? There is no other gathering that is preaching and teaching the gospel and salvation other than the saints of God who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb under the authority of the high priest who is at the right hand of God. And so it's when we understand who Jesus is and that as we gather with His people, we're going to look at it a little bit in Hebrews 12. It's as if we're gathering with all the saints. It's as if heaven itself is open. We're entering into the heavenly place through Christ. That's hard for our little minds to fully grasp. Okay? But He presents it as a mystery in Hebrews chapter 12. Okay? Any thoughts on that? So it doesn't surprise you then when we get to the things that are unique. And for those that are visiting today, with each of the books of the New Testament, this is a reminder, I try to present those things that are unique to that book, that if we didn't have it, what would we be missing in our theology? 
And so that we see that each gift, or each book is a gift from God the Holy Spirit, so that we have a full picture of all that we need to know about Christ, all that we need to know about salvation, all that we need to know about God's plan. Well, in Hebrews, we have the fullest picture of Jesus as the high priest. Think of how much we would not understand about Jesus and His ministry for us if we didn't fully understand Him as the high priest. Standing between us and God in the ultimate temple, offering the ultimate sacrifice, conquering sin and death, ascending to heaven, and seated when His work is done as offering the sacrifice, seated at the right hand of the Father. You have to have a good knowledge of the Old Testament to understand yes. the high priesthood. Yes, which is why he takes great lengths, right, to explain it. And we, if we read through it, without having necessarily full understanding of the Old Testament, we grasp some of it. But the more we understand the Old Testament, the better we'll understand how Christ is the beautiful fulfillment of it. I find it exciting to go back to yes. the Testament. Yes, yes. Wow. I say, wow, we're glad we don't have to follow the 612 years of the law. That Christ has fulfilled all of them, all of the sacrifices, all of the offerings, um, all of the ties, all of the suffering, each one. And so when we come in, we still offer a sacrifice, right? We offer the sacrifice of praise every time we get we offer the sacrifice of our lives committed to Him where we lay ourselves down. It's a living sacrifice. But we don't have to kidnap a goat on the way to church. <laughs> we don't have to raise cattle and other things out in the yard. They're strictly for pouring blood out of the altar. It's already been done. Do you think there's, with all this knowledge, that you, the person would have had to have had, does it imply that like it's it's a directed to knowledgeable people, to the, maybe the leadership or priests who knew scripture well or were well taught? It's, is it that that's kind of maybe an audience that's a little different? That's a good thought. Um, and I, I, I'll have to give that more thought. But I, I certainly would include them. But it seems to be written to those who have heard the gospel and at least are associating with the church in some capacity and are threatening to go back. Certainly, um, you know, in a sense, he could be explaining this regular way people, quote unquote, what they thought they knew from the Old Testament and this is how it's fulfilled. But. Lay people were still doing the sacrifices. They knew yeah, they were still involved. They yeah. just have to, have to bring them in. That's a good question. I don't think I have a final answer for it, but it is a good thought. Most of the lay people weren't literate, though, were they? They would memorize scripture. They would hear the Torah read. They would but I'm, not, I'm just saying that they couldn't have read the letter. I know to know to what degree there was literacy. I, I can't speak to that. I don't okay. know. But uh, that might be part of the equation. Okay. Yeah. Certainly, he's expecting his readers to go read. Obviously, he's sending a letter. Obviously, he's quoting from their book. So he has some degree of expectation that they know of what he is speaking. So, good questions. We might have to keep you studying again this week. <laughs> That's our job. Yes, it is. It is. questions we have answers for. Well, it is the book of Hebrews, after all. So, you know, we know they're all good questions, even if we don't have the answers. So, Hebrews gives us the fullest explanation of how Jesus is superior to everything else in creation. 
and he gives a clear picture of how the early church interpreted the Old Testament in light of the New. That's important. Right? Have any of you read through the Bible in a year? Okay. At what point were you tempted to stop? Genesis is really cool. Exodus is not bad. Leviticus. Right? I mean, if we're honest, that's what we say, right? Now, the more we know the book of Hebrews, and we go back and read Leviticus again, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we see that the little lights going on saying, Wait for it. You know, this is what had to be done. But it was pointing. It was a sign. It was a symbol. It was a, it was an indicator. It was pointing to something forward. And then the writer of Hebrews says, "Okay, got you covered. Let me show you how all these things are fulfilled in Christ." Yeah. Be exciting. Now we now we can look for Jesus all throughout the Old Testament because He did. And when He taught on the Emmaus Road, He said, "Look." The writings, the law, and the prophets all spoke of me and showed them the Bible study. Which we don't have the privilege of being part of because we just read about it. But we can try to trace those steps by doing this kind of study, right? So, yes, yes, um, we introduced a song. Carol was about a month ago? Something like that? Um, I forget the title of the song. Um, Jesus, uh, Jesus the true and better. I think it was called true and better. Christ the true and better Adam. Christ the true and better Moses. Christ the true and better David. Christ the true and better Isaac. And, and in song form, we were taught the story of the Old Testament how it points to Christ. We need to sing again because it's just a powerful thing. And of course, goes Amen, Amen from beginning to end. Christ the story, His the glory. Hallelujah. Amen. And that we can sing that then as we understand because we have God helping us showing at least how the early church wrestled with these issues to point people forward to Christ. Okay? And that's what we want to do. Alright? So, what are some of the key verses? Boy, how do you find key verses in such a <laughs> such a weighty book? And this is arbitrary on my part. You may pick a couple verses that you think are more fitting. Um, but Hebrews 20, uh, 20, uh, 9, 28. And just as is it appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. So uh, there's a door of entry into this world. There's a door of exit. And we're all going to go through. we got one shot at it while we're living. And then we'll face judgment. So Christ, having been offered once, once for all time, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Our hope of the second coming of Christ, of being ultimately delivered from all unrighteousness, wickedness, pain, and suffering. Okay? Because Christ suffered for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in other words, the testimony of the saints that walk before us in faith to God, let us lay aside every weight, burdens of this life, and sin with sin which clings so closely. We all know that by experience, don't we? The sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, I like the translation founder 
But I like even better, this word can be translated as pioneer. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Because he's the one that traced it out before us. Okay? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary, faint heart, right? Persecuted Christians, think about what Christ went through for you. The joy that was before him, the glory of the resurrection, the glory of the ascension, the glory of ascending and seated at the right hand of God the Father, all of that before him went through hell on the cross so that we might go to hell. Okay? I don't mean he went to hell, I mean he went through the hell of the cross. Okay? And now is seated at the right hand of the Father. Consider him so that when we endure hostility, we will not grow weary or despondent, or discouraged, or frustrated, or, 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 faint heart, okay? Yes? And the same for us, that is a um, theme for us, as we go through the hell of this life, I mean, the, you know, all the trials, the tribulations, and so forth, we can do it with joy because we're looking forward to the end being with him. Yes. And uh, and then hopefully doing it so that we bring glory to God. Yes. So as we said in the past, almost every book in the New Testament talks about what? False teachings come so we were. And almost every book talks about persecution and suffering. So endure. Stand firm. Get ready. I think God has a message for us. He keeps repeating it. So, the writer of Hebrews is no different. Um, that we, we know how to live in these evil days as we await the return of our Lord. Okay? Now, there's a lot of places we could go from here because there are some questions that people have. But what I'd like to do to start out in the few moments that I have left is I want us to look just at the first couple of verses and see how he sets the tone for what he's going to share in the rest of the day. So if you can turn to Hebrews chapter 1, let's just begin there. And we're just going to go through just a few verses, okay? Just because I want to get a little bit of a, an appetizer. <laughs> Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the power of His word, by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, God spoke long ago. God spoke. We see that all throughout the, the Old Testament. Something like 3,800 times you have, and the, the word of the Lord says. Okay? Or the word of God says. Or thus saith the Lord. Or the word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah saying. Okay? So he spoke. To the forefathers would be what? Those forefathers in the faith. So, spoke that. He 
spoke to Noah, he spoke to Abraham, he spoke to Moses, he spoke to David. Okay? He spoke through the prophets, I'm sorry? Enoch. Enoch, yes. He spoke through the prophets. Okay? So he had a way of talking. In many ways, and in the prophets. Dreams, visions, natural disasters, miracles, through the prophets. He spoke in many ways. But, so now we have a contrasting situation here. What, right? But, in these last days. So he had ways of speaking before. The different means through which he spoke and, and made his word known. But, now, there is a greater means of revelation. Now he speaks through his son. You see the difference? What was before was good in the former days. But in these last days, better. he has spoken to us by his son. It is a better means of revelation. A complete means of revelation. This is not to say... Okay, so it literally says... Now, in, in my ESV version here, it says, has spoken to us by His Son. Okay, they put the possessive there. Okay, I don't know what you have in NIV and King James. I have His Son. By His Son. No, Standard, His Son. Okay. What verse are we on? Uh, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. But in these latter days, he has spoken to us, and literally in Greek, it's by a son. Hmm. Okay, think about it. What has he been saying? He spoke to him by, spoke to him by many means. A prophet, a dream, a vision, whatever it was. But now he is speaking to us by a son. He's not, the, the writer is not denying that Jesus is the son of God. He hasn't given Jesus' name yet. That will come later. He's saying now there is a better vehicle of revelation. It's not a dream. It's not a vision. It's not a prophet. It's a son. You see that? Now, it's not wrong for his son. Okay? But just be sure that when you read that, you understand that it's meant to contrast the means of revelation. Okay? It's spoken to us by a son. By his son. And then... We get into this wonderful description of who this son is. Now the son has been the name hasn't been given yet. It's just a son. And he's going to show how this son is a better means of revelation than all that came before. Okay? He has spoken to us by his son, whom what? He pointed the air of all things. Now think of that. What is an air? The sun. <laughs> well, what is an heir normally? Receiver. Receiver of? The inheritance, right? The heir gets the inheritance. <clears throat> so here's the son who is going to be what? The inheritor, the heir of all things. The writer of Hebrews is established right from the beginning. There is a greater revelation that is here. This will bring to mind Psalm 2. Where God the Father says to the Messiah, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your possession. Okay? And Jesus will get it all. We know that. We see the promises all throughout the Gospels and the Epistles of Paul and what happened. Okay? So, this son 
will be the heir of all things. He will inherit all things. It's, it's the greatest one that inherits, right? It's the greater son. He's inheriting all things. Through, so through who? A son, the son, the greater means, he created the world. So he's going to inherit all that he created. Okay, so you see, this is better than what the prophets received. This is better than what the visions showed. This is better than what the visions portended. This son is the heir of all things, through whom all things remain. Now we see that in the first three verses of the Gospel of John, right? The beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was God, and was God in the beginning. Through whom all things were made, that have been made, without nothing has been made, and has been made. Okay? He's the heir, the agent, through whom all things were created. So imagine being, if you can, a, a Jewish reader of the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. You know about the sacrifices, you know about the priests, you know about all of that. And the writer of Hebrews starts out. You know, long ago God spoke in many ways and through many means. Now they went to their version of Sunday school, right? So they heard the stories. They heard the names. They knew the, name, the, the, the events, right? Yes, God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. But in these last days, greater means. You feel the weight of it? How the first readers would have heard it? Greater means. Who will inherit all things? Who is the creator of all And beyond that, it goes on, he is what? Radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. Who radiated God's glory in the Old Testament? Can you think of anyone? Uh, Moses. 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 Yeah. Moses radiated the glory of God right ahead and put the veil on. Okay? It's interesting that Jesus tore the veil. So there's nothing between us and God anymore. Okay? The radiance is the exact reflection of the glory of God. So John 1 1 talks about in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was God. It says down in verse 14 and 15, we beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only begotten of the Father. Okay? This word what became flesh and lived among us. That Jesus is the, the ultimate radiance of the glory of God. And in the Old Testament, where God's glory was seen, it was a sign of his divinity, his divine power. So now this son, we don't have his name yet. It's actually not mentioned until well into chapter 2. We know who it is. Okay? But the writer, imagine the first audience, look, a greater means who is the heir of all things, through whom all things were created. He's the glory, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. The word in Greek is character. Transliterated. Character. It's the exact character of God. When you take a stamp, you know, press it on the, into the clay or whatever, you get the image, right? That's what Jesus was. He was the exact image. He was the exact character, if you will. The exact representation of God. His nature, His essence. What God essentially is, in His essence, is made manifest in the Son. That's why Jesus in the Gospel of John could say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
because he knew that he was of the same essence of God. If you see me, you see the essence, the character, the nature of God. It is goodness, his love, his peace, his holiness, his justice, and all the rest. Okay? This would cause a tremendous amount of study and argument. I At that time? Yeah. Every phrase. Yeah. We believe that God has inspired every word, right? Which is why we, we camp on words at times. And we'll finish with this. Because we'll, we'll, we'll finish the rest of it, but let's finish the sentence here. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. <clears throat> Who upholds the universe by the word of his power? Jesus. The Son. So not only does he inherit all that he's created and, and will restore everything that was lost in Adam, he's the exact nature of God, his character, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now you want to know why everybody's going to bow the knee before him one day? Okay? He's going to be glorified. That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Jesus that is our Savior and our Redeemer. He upholds you by the word of his power. Will you trust him this week? With all that's in your life? Because if he's able to hold all things by the word of his power, friends, he's got you. He upholds you. And you can turn to him in any situation this week. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're leading us through as we look at this wonderful gift that is for you, this book of Hebrews. Father, would you expand our understanding and help us to grow in you more. And then this week, Father, remind us who Jesus is as we look at Hebrews chapter 1. And this week, Father, would you cause our hearts to turn to you in every challenge and in every blessing and say, because he upholds us by the word of his power and that we will place all of our burdens gladly in his hands. Thank you, Father, for that blessing and that reminder. Would you dismiss us now with your peace? And we pray, Jesus. Thank you, everyone.